Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 219 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Body Confidence, an interview with Liz Wolcott. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, I've been searching for a way or a term to help people understand that the only way that they're going to heal is if they listen to their own body. And this interview with Liz Wolcott gave us that term, body confidence. Rich, Liz taught us so much. She treated with one of the top Lyme doctors and got stuck in the antibiotic loop where she kept getting treated with antibiotics, got a little bit better, would stop, got really sick, would go back on antibiotics, get a little bit better again, stop, and the cycle would repeat over and over and over again for several years. She finally broke this antibiotic cycle and moved on to get stem cells in Germany and talked to us in great detail about the process leading up to the stem cell infusion and the post-stem cell process to give us both the benefits and the risks of stem cells for chronic Lyme disease. She also talked to us about a really new ozone therapy, which is like putting your blood through a car wash and gave us great detail about that therapy as well. And the other really powerful thing she gave us is many people with chronic Lyme suffer from pain and she finally found a tool that was able to alleviate her chronic pain and give her back her quality of life. Matt, the biggest mistake in my view that people make when they're on a Lyme disease journey is they believe that they get to the superstar doctor, they're going to get better. The problem with that, of course, is when it's not working, it's hard for you to pivot away from that doctor because you waited so long to get to that doctor. But what Liz taught us and what Liz is teaching our community is that it's actually body confidence or having confidence in the information that your body is giving to you, which will cause you to heal, even when you have to pivot away from the superstar doctors or from any other protocol. So Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce Body Confidence and Liz Wolcott to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Liz Wolcott, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you. So happy to be here. And we're really excited to have you on this podcast because you've done so many cool things that <laughs> our folks are going to be really excited to learn about. And you're doing some really cool things that I don't think we've even ever heard about now that you're you're playing guinea pig for not only yourself and your healing, but for the rest of the community. But we'll get there in a minute, Liz. Uh, so before we go too far into uh, into the cool things you're doing, let's, let's uh, share um, with our audience who you are. So talk about uh, first where you live and, uh, and talk about where you grew up. Yes. So I currently live in New York city. Um, I've been here for over 10 years. I, uh, was actually born in Florida though, and, um, lived there until my mid twenties. Um, but knew since I was a young girl that I eventually wanted to end up in New York. So here I am. Well, welcome to New York. Uh, Matt and I are excited to have a New Yorker who does not speak like us. Uh, we, we're generally concerned when uh, we have three New Yorkers on the podcast, whether or not they're going to have to put closed captions on our uh, podcast. <laughs> so it's good that you'll be able to be clearly understood. So Liz, talk to us about um, what it was like to grow up in Florida. Uh, what was your education like and what kinds of things did you experience as a child in Florida? I love my childhood in Florida. Um, I grew up near the beach. I um, have a twin brother, um, just the two of us in our family. And I was outdoors playing every sport. My parents were such troopers. They really wanted me to feel like I could do anything my brother could do. So I played baseball until I was like 12 or 13, only girl on the team. I was on the swim team. I played soccer. I played volleyball. I ran track. I did gymnastics when I was younger, dance. So they really, you know, were wonderful parents and support and let us do all the activities. And I was always outside um, or on the beach, just had a wonderful childhood. Um, went to Catholic school and, you know, grew up with religion and faith. Um, and yeah, just a, like a really 
wonderful growing up. <laughs> it sounds like it was wonderful. So how long did you stay in Florida? And talk to us about what the educational experience was like in Florida. Um, it was great. I, uh, again, I went to Catholic schools, great education, great sports program. Um, I ended up going to the University of Florida. Um, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do at the time. And UF is great school. And I got in and scholarship. And my dad said, go to undergrad there. And then when you figure out, figure out what you want to do, we'll send you anywhere you want for grad school. Um, I ended up staying in grad school and getting my MBA or staying in Florida and getting my MBA, um, and my, um, CPA also. So I am an MBA CPA. Um, and congratulations to your parents. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, God bless them. They got me through all of that grad school and college. <laughs> All right. So uh, it sounds like you were an outdoorsy gal, right? You were from an outdoorsy family and um, and you were an athlete. And much of what we teach our young athletes is how to perform at the highest level, how to keep their bodies healthy, how to eat properly, how to maintain a really healthy lifestyle. Um, we also teach our athletes um, how to be safe while they're playing whatever sport they're playing, right? So did you receive safety instruction from your coaches and from your parents and from the other people who were um, aiding you in your athletic pursuits? Um, I guess I'd say so, yes. I mean, just depending on what sport I was playing or what I was doing and what I need to look out for. Um, and thankfully got away with no major injuries, no knee blowouts in soccer or anything like that. I, I broke my collarbone, but there are worse things. Um, and had some minor back issue that got better um, years. But yes, I would so, say they, they notified me of, of the safety concerns. Right. So you, you were generally safe while you were performing these activities. Now, did any of your coaches or any of the people that were training you athletically prepare you to protect yourself from ticks and tick diseases? Because you were an outdoorsy gal, you were coming in contact with ticks clearly, or you should have been concerned about coming in contact with ticks. Anybody prepare you to keep yourself safe from ticks and uh, Lyme disease? Absolutely not. <laughs> there are definitely ticks in Florida. Um, they are more in wooded areas, but they're, I mean, ticks and Lyme disease were never discussed. I not in, you know, for 20 plus years, did I ever even hear of a tick? I think definitely not Lyme disease. Now you were a good, uh, you went to good Catholic schools for your education. So your parents paid a lot of money for you, even as a young child. When you were taking health courses or were you taking um, science courses, you learn anything about vectors and ticks and tick diseases and how to keep yourself healthy um, and safe from those types of vectors? Absolutely not. I was not aware that anything could really contract something that was of concern, whether it was a mosquito or a tick or whatever um, type of insect. All right. So now you went to one of the top schools in the state of Florida for your undergraduate education, for your graduate school. You have all kinds of letters after your name, MBA, CPA. We, we, we got this really strong education at one of the top schools in your state. Did you take any science courses and did you learn anything about ticks or tick diseases while you were getting this top-notch education? Um, I did take some basic level science courses um, first few years of school and no. No, no tick education. <laughs> okay. So now Liz, let's talk about how your life proceeds. You now graduate from college with uh, your MBA and, your, and you ultimately sit for the CPA exam. And, and what kind of work did you pursue and how did that take you to New York? 
So since my first visit to New York, which I was pretty young, it was the day we traveled Christmas day up to New York. I think it was preteen age and went to Rockefeller center and solitary. And I immediately fell in love with the city, the energy, just the opportunity. Um, so I had always known, I kind of wanted to end up here for a certain amount of time at least. And, um, I had gotten a, I had received an offer from one of the big four accounting firms, um, before finishing grad school to come up here and work with them. Um, I had graduated grad school kind of in a tough economic time. And so I was happy to have the offer and a, a good starting salary. And I really wanted to come up here and, you know, be independent, financially independent from my parents for the first time hold my own, become an independent girl and just really experience the city. So now before you went to graduate school, clearly you were, you were, uh, you had a number of different skills and, and, and obviously you had strong math skills because you wouldn't have been someone who, uh, who sat for the uh, CPA exam. So talk to us about, uh, talk to us about um, why you decided to, to pursue accounting and why uh, one of the big four were where you wanted to, um, to begin your career? Uh, my father actually started his career similarly. And he, so he started at one of the big four accounting firms and then he went on to run all different types of companies in different industries and really saw and achieved so much um, on his own um, just with that background. So we figured, because my brother actually also kind of starting a similar route, you know, we've seen what our father has done, what he's achieved and what that kind of foundational education did for him. So we kind of walked in his footsteps for the initial part of our career. So this is, this is the training that you needed to become an entrepreneur. I think it helped. Um, you know, I think school helps a lot and then real life experience also helps a lot. So I think it was definitely a mix. The numbers thing, um, the numbers side of it, uh, I'm lucky to kind of understand because I like being creative and I can also understand the numbers aspect. So I definitely think it gave me a great foundation. So, so talk to us more about your New York experience because you didn't come to New York just to go work at an accounting firm. So talk to us about what your life was like socially and culturally and what all the kinds of things were you doing when you arrived to the big city? Um, yeah, I mean, experiencing the energy in, in every way and just everything the city has to offer, whether it was the incredible food or the amazing wellness world, because I, I worked out a lot. I was still very active. Um, that was a huge part of my life. Um, and then just working hard in my job. Um, I would work 80 to 100 hour weeks often, um, more than I expected, um, but still would work out, you know, late at night or really early in the morning. So it was, it was definitely like a throw you into the New York city mix as a young, um, you know, as a young individual embarking on their career. So what was the social experience? Like, were you making friends and what kinds of things were you guys doing when you had time away from your 80 to hundred hour work week? <laughs> Well, those weren't all the time. So I did definitely have a social life, um, which was, which was really fun. Um, I met a good group soon after moving here. Um, they invited me to fun brunches and just kind of, that was very much the New York scene. Um, just had a really great group outings. Um, they rented a summer house together and 
again, just, you know, typical New York city, young kid life back then, which was super fun and nonstop. <laughs> so talk to us about your summer house. I'm interested in that. Was that on Long Island? Was it in Jersey? Where were you going for your summers? It was Long Island. It was um, in the Hamptons area. And I believe that's where I eventually got a tick bite. Um, never saw one. Um, but I, again, was the Florida girl. I was really never warned about ticks, obviously growing up. And then I had heard about them a few times um, once while I was out in the Hamptons, but never tick checked after coming inside. Don't really think there was a fence around our yard. Just never was aware of anything um, out of safety or precaution um, of a tick bite or Lyme. Um, so although those were some incredibly fun summers, uh, I wish I was a lot more knowledgeable at the time. Okay, so let's, let's develop this a little bit together, Liz. So you're, um, you're a Florida gal coming up and pursuing her dream to work at one of the top accounting firms in the country. Um, your, part of your social experience was to, to um, purchase a share of a summer house for a couple of summers. So let's talk about that piece of it and how that was a part of the culture um, that you had, um, that you had desired to be a part of. How many different years did you, did you purchase an interest in a summer house with your colleagues at your accounting firm? Um, I believe I did a share house for two years, my first two years that I moved here. Okay. And talked about why you wanted to do that and how exciting it was and what kinds of things you do. And I'm not asking for any sordid details, but give us some details about why it was so much fun for you to participate in summering out here on Long Island, very close to where Matt and I are sitting right now. <laughs> well, I think just, you know, again, going back to my growing up, used to being outdoors, used to being by a beach, used to being, you know, getting your vitamin D and being in the sun um, was a big draw for me to spend some time out there on top of, of course, hearing about the Hamptons for many years. And um, the city gets very hot and it just, it was a fun escape and a fun way to, again, socialize. Um, there's a lot to do out there. Again, good food and some bars and just jump around, go to the beach. It's very easy to meet people. That's ended up how I met my husband out there. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Um, pre all the, the dating app. So it was very organic. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was just such a fun way to meet people, have a great weekend, have a little bit of time off uh, for a couple months during the year. Now you said earlier that you suspect that you suffered your tick bite while you were out there during one of these two summers. Do you, can you specify which of the two years you believe you suffered the tick bite or are you just thinking back after starting to get sick that it was one of the two years? It was one of the two years um, because after that second year, uh, it was when I really, I started feeling my symptoms um, and I spent, I've spent some time out there since. So mm -hmm. it was, it really narrowed it down to those first two years for sure. Okay. So <clears throat> now you said during your early description that you had no information about ticks when you had gotten out there, meaning where well, you said you heard something about ticks. So give me, give me that information. What were you advised about? ticks when you got out east to uh, Eastern Long Island and what did it register in your mind when, when you received the information? I really, it was, there was really not much depth. Um, I just, again, it wasn't even a check for ticks. It was like, you know, you might get a tick bite and then there was no sort of follow-up or 
oh, you should get on antibiotics or you should look for a rash or you should see how you felt, monitor your, your health. None of that. I remember a girl in our house got a tick bite and we just kind of all thought it was entertaining and we, she took out the tick and that was that. So the level of education didn't really increase much when I was out there. I'm sorry. So you had a tick experience with one of your roommates uh, suffering a tick bite. Um, and um, that's all you knew, right? She, 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 she got bit by a tick. It, it was kind of entertaining because I guess she was squirmish about it and you were all thought it was gross that, that a tick would bite you. But that was the end of it, right? That's all you knew about ticks and tick bites. Correct. All right. So now give us some insight into when you first started feeling your symptoms. You said looking back, it was after the second year of the share house. Um, and, and, and we're happy to know that there was some good and bad that came out of it. Really good. You found your husband really bad. You got a, you got a, uh, you got a tick <laughs> disease. So let's talk about the, um, the, the, the bad part of part of that for the moment. When did you first start to feel your symptoms? Um, it was in uh, March of 2012 and the dead of winter, which is, was through another kind of wrench into figuring out what exactly it was because I had had no prior symptoms, but I'd had a tough year. I'd lost my grandfather. Um, I continued working in that job and, and was in busy season. The beginning of the year is busy season. So that's when the 80 to 100 hour weeks really kicked in um, or were not abnormal. Um, and it was winter. I am still a Florida girl and <laughs> don't always feel great in winter um, and wasn't keeping up with my health as much as I typically do with working out, et cetera, and eating. Um, so I started getting my first symptoms actually after work, after a workout class and, um, it kind of progressed from there. So what was the first symptom that you felt? So, um, I was waking up for a 6am spinning class, which wasn't abnormal for me. Um, and I remember waking up and just not feeling well. And typically I wasn't, I wasn't full enjoyment waking up for a 6am spinning class because it's very early, but I didn't ever really feel this poorly, but I chalked it up just to being tired and forced myself to get out of bed and go, went to the class, remember leaving the class and having heart, my heart was racing. I was having cold sweats. Um, and I just remember my heart feeling like something was going to happen. I it was just racing and beating out of my chest. And again, the cold sweats was very weird. Um, just sweating more than usual, just very odd symptoms. And that's when I realized something's something's up. So, so Liz, you, you were approximately 27 at that time. Yes. Okay. So let, let's, let's unpack the lifestyle that you were leading at that time, right? So you're working at one of the top accounting firms in the country and they are working you to death, right? <laughs> Pretty much. All right. Um, and you're a type A personality. So even though you're working, you know, 15 hour days, you're getting up at six o'clock in the morning to go to a, to a spin class, right? So, you, so you're, you, you, you can't get up at seven or eight to go to spin class because you got to get to work by seven, right? So you go to spin class really early in the morning. So you're expanding your day more than just working, but you're expanding your day to work out, right? Yes. Now, did you also at that time um, have a relationship with your now husband? Had you already met him at that time? So it's interesting. Um, I started dating him right around that time. Okay. So 
So now, so now you're fitting in a social relationship on top of working 20 hours a day and trying to work out with your type A personality. So you now have all these social obligations, right? Right. Correct. And then, then of course you, and I'm sorry to, sorry to bring it up, but I think we have to, we have to unpack this. You, you suffered a personal loss, right? Your, your, your grandpa had passed away and, and, and that was immune disrupting as well. So you were really burning the candles at, I mean, if we had a, a, an eight sided candle, you were burning every single piece of it. Right. I mean, you weren't sleeping, right? Right. Yes. I was very much pushing it and not living a balanced lifestyle to say the least. <laughs> okay. So Talk to us about how your symptoms do, do develop and when do you first start seeing a doctor as your symptoms are developing? Did you go to see a doctor right away after you started feeling these really odd symptoms from the spin class or did it take some time for your symptoms to develop before you went to see a doctor for the first time? So I really hadn't established a lot of medical, like I didn't even have a primary care doctor yet here, um, which looking back was probably silly, but no, but when would you have the time to see a doctor? You were, you were working and working out and socializing 23 hours a day. True. Um, and I, I just kind of talked it up to something that would eventually go away. Right. Like I would, I don't, I didn't know if it was mono or something that just would eventually subside because it always did. Um, and, um, over time, over the next six months, my symptoms started increasing and then I started adding more symptoms. Um, one of them being a swollen lymph node in the back of my neck, which I thought was bizarre. And I ended up going to my dermatologist for another reason and asking her and saying, feel this, you know, I, I, this is odd. This is the first time I felt this. I don't think I've ever had this. And you know, what do you think this is? And that's when I, she sent me to, um, a PCP and I started going down the, the doctor journey. Now, in many cases, dermatologists will, will diagnose Lyme disease because uh, we, we show signs of Lyme on our body. When you went to your dermatologist and you asked the dermatologist to look at the lymph node on the back of your neck, did the doctor examine the rest of your body to see if there were any other signs that you know, he or she should have been calling to your attention diagnostically? No, I don't think so. Um... There was, yeah, there was not really much done to look out for Lyme, a couple of, you know, um, inadequate blood tests throughout the next three years. So no, she definitely did not ever, I think, look for anything related to Lyme. So give us more detail on the symptoms that you were dealing with, because you gave us the early symptoms from the spin class. How were things really developing uh, to the point where you now have this lymph node sticking out of the back of your neck and, um, and, uh, and. Again, what, what else was going on before you went to the primary care physician? So I remember starting to have light sensitivity, particularly at night um, with car lights. So they would kind of, I say they like explode in my eye, which is like kind of a dramatic, I guess, description, but very sensitive to car lights at night, which was odd um, and not fun in New York City. Um, and I started getting tingling. I actually printed out one of my old my old uh, symptom list, because I have to remember sometimes I got more fatigued. I had some tingling in my, the right, only the right side of my face, which became chronic, um, dry eyes, the swollen lymph nodes, light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, flushed face, um, some like chest tightness and pains. I would say a little bit of like low, low level anxiety or like nervousness, 
shortness of breath, heart rate, hot and cold sweats, and jaw clenching. <laughs> so now let's let's talk about that. You said on the right side of your face, you had was it like paralysis? What was going on with the right side of your face? It was just solely a tingling sensation. It was not paralysis. It was not Bell's palsy. There was no physical uh, way to observe what I was experiencing. Um, just this tingling sensation almost every day. So you said this was developing over the course of what, three years? Right. Over three years. All right. Now, um, how many different doctors did you go to see with these various symptoms that sound to me like classic Lyme disease symptoms? Um, how many different doctors did you see during that window? I saw at least 15. And what, without giving me the, the names of any of the doctors, can you give, give me the disciplines? What you, you, you shared with us that you saw a, uh, a dermatologist and you saw a primary care physician. What other disciplines did you, uh, did you get, um, examined by? I mainly was going to neuro, uh, neurologists or ophthalmologists. Um, I was trying to see the top doctors in New York um, because a lot of this was seemed neurological to me, whether it was autonomic or whatever it may be. I did not have the, I did not have joint pains. I did not have like a really flu feeling. Um, so I just kept focusing on what symptoms I could feel. Um, and so a lot of them were in fact neurologists. And um, so how many different neurologists did you see? And did any of them give you a diagnosis? Um, I probably saw at least six were neurologists. Um, a lot of them started off by, off by saying, well, I'm sure you have MS. I'm sure, you know, we need to do a, another brain MRI. I had multiple brain MRIs. I'm sure we'll find lesions on your brain, um, et cetera, or spinal cord, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that was jolting, leaving every one of those doctor's offices. And thankfully every brain MRI came back that I had a textbook brain was the reading. So I was grateful for that. That was a definite win, even though I couldn't figure out what was truly going on. Now you're seeing all these doctors at some of the top medical, uh, centers in New York city in close proximity to the Hamptons. And of course you're a young woman who is likely living a Hampton life during the summer. Did any of the doctors ever ask you, Hey, Liz, you go out to the Hamptons? No, never any questions about ticks. Again, a few of them ran, ran a typical quest, um, Western blot blood test. Um, I, I always had multiple bands come back as positive, two or three of the bands. But as we know, you need five bands to be CDC positive. I did not know that at the time. I wish I did. And I am still frankly shocked that none of the doctors at least would notice that I tested positive for some of the bands and say, Hey, this is a red flag. So Liz, when did the conversation about Lyme disease first come up? And when did these doctors suggest you that you should, should be tested for Lyme? So, um, I actually had a close friend that was diagnosed with Lyme disease. And I had dinner with her one night and she was explaining to me some of her symptoms. And she had also gotten into a great circle of doctors within the city. And a few of them really tried to get down to the root cause and what was really going on with patients and took their time. And um, so I said, Hey, I'm going to try, if you don't mind, I'm going to follow your lead and go to this doctor that you had seen. Um, so I did he ended up sending me at a low, um, autoimmune, a low level autoimmune marker. He sent me to a rheumatologist 
thinking that he would diagnose me with autoimmune. The rheumatologist would not diagnose me with, um, with an autoimmune disorder, but did start giving me hydroxychloroquine and somewhat treating me for something uh, similar. I, I think maybe he thought it was Lyme, but didn't necessarily want to diagnose me. And then I eventually found an infectious disease doctor from that same friend. Um, and within a few minutes, he diagnosed me. With Lyme disease? Yes. He said, you've, you have all these symptoms. You have literally no, no health background, no blips in your health up until now of any sort. And you've been spending time in a tick endemic area and I can, I'll run the blood test, but you have Lyme disease. Okay. So I'm going to ask you to pause there for a second, because Matt is going to want to talk to you about that part of your journey. But before we go there, I want you to talk to me about how you're developing symptoms or impacting your life, meaning how is it impacting you at work and how is it impacting your social life? So, I mean, it was obviously having all these symptoms was scary um, and they were progressing. I actually um, saw one neurologist that thought it was, I was having migraines. So I, I typically say it was never misdiagnosed, but that was kind of the closest thing I got to a diagnosis. And he had put me on a medication for migraines that had really helped kind of suppress or keep at bay some of my symptoms for a year and a half, like when the year that I was getting married, um, and, uh, you know, another crazy year for me. Um, but it was really, once I got off those, that one medication that it was just a full swoop of these symptoms just taking over my life. And that was when I really got back on seeing different doctors, additional different, different doctors. And I eventually, I took a leave from work because I started getting migraines every single day at 2 PM. And on top of the list of symptoms that I read earlier, migraines at 2 PM, you cannot work in my job at the time. And I couldn't do my job. Um, so I took a leave, had a few more brain scans done, took some medication, came back a few weeks later, started having the migraines again. And that's actually when my husband said, you need to leave your job. You need to focus on your health. You cannot do this. You have to get better. And that was the most amazing thing for him to say. It was so it was one of the darkest times of my life, um, for sure. If not the darkest kind of losing my identity and my career, but I'm so grateful. Um, I did. And he supported me in that decision. So he, well, it sounds like he more than supported you in the decision. He almost, almost had to push you into making the decision because, uh, you said that your identity was tied to your job. And, and, and let's talk about that a little bit, Liz, before we, we get to the diagnosis, which is, um, you know, you you were modeling your dad. Your dad was this uh, successful entrepreneur who um, who had uh, gone off to work at one of the big four, and then and um, and you and your brother wanted to emulate him, and that became who you were, right? I mean, it's it, it's almost like who you were reared to become, and you achieved this goal, and you were working these long days, and you were living the 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 life of of of, of a young New York City um, person, and, and with all the trappings. And then you start to get too sick to, to do any of that, right? Uh, so talk to us about how it was impacting you socially as well, right? Because part of this life that you had built uh, for yourself was that you worked hard, but you played hard, right? Uh, <laughs> talk to us about how, how this impacted your ability to play hard when you weren't able to work hard any longer. 
I did. I did work hard and play hard. And, um, again, I was very social and, um, at that time in my life, you know, you would go out and have a drink with friends and you would go out most nights, even if it was meeting up with one girlfriend, you'd have a drink. Um, and that was something that made me progressively feel more, feel worse and worse. And, um, the next day, even after, after a glass of wine, you know, I felt terrible. So that was, and I think being in a relationship, you know, I, I, it calmed me down a little bit, you know, I could have a more relaxing social life and spending time with my now husband. And, um, but definitely, I mean, I, I wasn't able to, it was tapering off as far as much, how much I could go out and how much I could see people and what I could do and just exhaustion at the end of the day, after a work day, just wanting to go straight home and not see anyone. (laughs) How are your friends reacting to you not being available to socialize on a regular basis? Um, you know, I think it was tough. I think, um, I, I kind of had to give a lot of my time and I decided to give a lot of my time into my relationship, which I'm, I'm glad I did because, you know, he ended up being my husband, but it's totally changed. And especially looking at today, it's, I'm very careful about what type of energy I'm around and my, what friends I have, because, it really can take a toll on how you're feeling and that can throw you into a tailspin if you're around people that aren't in line, I guess, with, with you. Well, so, so Liz, so in in many cases uh, where we've interviewed folks in your situation, they, uh, they were unavailable to friends and friends started getting mad at them and they started losing friendships. But it sounds like you sort of had another thing that was going on, which was you had a relation, a romantic relationship developing. So it almost sounds like your friends had an, ex, you know, they understood why perhaps you weren't going to be spending time with them, not because you weren't well, but because you were in another relationship. So this, you sort of had this built in excuse, which let's talk about that. Your built in excuse, which is your now husband was your boyfriend. How were you, how were you doing in, in developing that relationship? And were there things that you were doing that caused you to feel that you weren't being an adequate partner in this blossoming relationship? Yeah. Well, uh, the first year it was, these symptoms were gradually coming on and it was, you know, first, even six months, I was like, you know, this is weird. What's I don't understand what's going on. I don't, I'm going to tough it out. And I almost wish I started looking for care earlier because I didn't want to start this burden on my life. And I just wanted to think, put it off and just hope for the best that it was one day going to magically disappear. Um, and it didn't. Well, <laughs> as you that- also had, you also had the euphoria of being in a new relationship, right? So you had all these feel good chemicals flowing through your body and you could probably, you probably weren't feeling as badly as you would have had you not been in this new relationship. Yes. I mean, it was definitely something to try to, you know, I took my focus off of what was going on and I was, I was grateful for that. And he was already very supportive and all that jazz. So for sure. So what kinds of things were you not able to do in this relationship that, um, you know, that caused you to feel unhappy or uncomfortable, you're getting sicker and sicker. Thankfully he's a good man and he's willing to, um, willing to, uh, stick it out, even though it's a relatively new relationship, but you know, what kinds of things were you feeling badly about, um, in this relationship? Were there things that you, you would have wanted to do together or other things that you would have, uh, you know, activities you would have participated in and, and you were unable to, because you were getting sick. You know, I think that really was about like the three years later when I got off the medication that was suppressing some of these symptoms. Um, 
I, I've had to kind of not attend certain things, um, certain family events, or even just like certain funerals or certain weddings and just saying, you know, I have to, it took me a very, my point being, it took me a very long time to force myself to have a balanced lifestyle and to really understand that I can't do everything. And I've always been the person that I want to do everything. I want to go to every wedding. I want to be at every family event to support for my husband. Um, and I want to travel all the time. I want to, you know, just be super active. And it took me a really long time for me to truly look at myself and say, I cannot do these things. It's taking a toll on my health and I physically cannot do these things anymore. I mean, I am grateful that I was never bedridden. I'm grateful that I truly wasn't physically able to go to things. Um, but it, that was, that was a long, longer lesson learned for me. I think, um, especially since my symptoms were fairly gradual over that, that time period. So Liz living in New York, I'm just shocked to hear that you had all of these symptoms from these, you know, these out of, out of the blue neurological symptoms that are classic neural Lyme symptoms, plus other Lyme symptoms that weren't neurologic. When your friend brought up Lyme disease and you brought that to your doctors, you mentioned that you were doing some brain scans. And we know that with Lyme specifically, MRIs aren't very helpful in diagnosing or giving us some keys into identifying Lyme. So was a PET scan ever discussed with any of your neurologists, any of the six that you saw or any of your, your other doctors? to try to get a better picture of what was going on with you neurologically? I did do a PET scan once I was finally diagnosed. Um, so that was at, finally after we started figuring things out. Um, but no, not before then. It was just simply MRIs. And all those MRIs, I'm sure, came up perfectly fine, right? <laughs> of course, yes. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just stress. <laughs> but I just, I see this pattern here, right? I mean, I went through it myself. I had countless MRIs of my brain and my neck. I mean, full body MRIs. So many times I can't even count. You went through that same experience. We both end up with Lyme disease and our doctors see this. Yet for whatever reason, we're not doing better scans to give us clues to diagnose Lyme when we suspect it as both patients and doctors. So it's pretty frustrating to see that that, that pattern is still out there, especially here in New York where Lyme is so, so prevalent. But talk to us more about when you started pushing the Lyme idea because of your friend and you finally landed with an infectious disease doctor, which is kind of interesting because most of our guests tell us infectious disease doctors are really bad at diagnosing Lyme and they're the ones who missed the boat. So do you think that you were lucky to find an infectious disease doctor that actually was willing to listen to you and help you get your, your Lyme diagnosis? Absolutely. Again, I think it was kind of a wonderful circle of doctors that I had gotten into that kind of all worked with each other. And then of course they have to have the courage to diagnose you, right? Because we know the blood tests are so incompetent and it's Lyme is just such, it can put a target on you. Um, so I was grateful, um, to find him absolutely. And, and he was the first infectious disease doctor that I saw. So I, I am very grateful that he was able to immediately diagnose me. And this was a, was it a clinical diagnosis at first? And was it ever followed up with any lab work to confirm? Clinical diagnosis, yes. Um, he followed up with actually Stony Brook bloods, but um, later got Igenix. Yeah, I could tell you, I have done Stony Brook labs as well. They came back negative for me too in the beginning. Um, and that's actually right down the block from where Rich and I live, Stony Brook University and the, and the lab. So it sounds like Igenix eventually for you was the testing that showed positive for Lyme. 
Yes, eventually. And, and now I've moved on to MDL, which I always tell people Igenix and MDL. I believe MDL might be more affordable. I'm not sure. Um, they might be similar now, but those are the only two labs worth. <laughs> I know there's more internationally, but those are the ones that I recommend. So Liz, once you got your diagnosis initially, when you went to this doctor and within three minutes, he's like, you have Lyme disease. Did you treat with this infectious disease doctor or did you find a specialist now to move forward with and treat with? He sent me to another specialist, um, in the city. Um, he did, he's the one who went, that did a PET scan. He, he really, um, had studied neurological Lyme. He's the one who went, did a PET scan with me. And then he did uh, testing for POTS. And I just, I felt the need to kind of move on. Um, and he offered to get me into a world-renowned doctor that was at the time impossible to get into. Um, and so I thought, okay, I'm going to go see this doctor and just, it was so complicated already. And, you know, it's just so overwhelming. I'm sure you, when you first were diagnosed and you go on the internet and there's no answers and it's just, wow. Um, I, I really was looking forward to finding one doctor who I could just place my trust in and just follow his protocol and hopefully get better. So talk to us about before we go to this world-renowned doctor, you went to a neurologist who specialized in neural Lyme in New York City, and he did a PET scan. So talk to us about what that PET scan showed in regards to neurological Lyme and also how your brain function was not, you know, that of a normal brain. You know, I, I'm trying to, it's been a while. And I, I remember there was, I don't think it was a, egregiously uh, abnormal. I believe there was one or two minimal areas with blood flow um, issues or something. I, I moved on pretty quickly from him. Um, and I, I really can't remember the details, but it wasn't perfect or normal by any means. Um, but my symptoms were so bad that, you know, it's, it was such a symptomatic issue at that point. And it's, I was like, I don't even, whatever this even says, like that my symptoms are so terrible that I need to do something aggressive and quickly. <laughs> So the, the pet scan did show that some things were, were not normal and obviously you were getting sicker and sicker. And it sounds like this neurologist also diagnosed you with POTS, correct? Um, low level POTS. That wasn't one of my top symptoms. Okay. And Liz, did you treat with this doctor or was this still the preliminary phases of doing more testing before you started treating? I did not treat with him. No, I moved along to this other well-known doctor that I had heard of and thought, Again, you know, if I can get one into one of these quote unquote top doctors, then I should just go. <laughs> and I'm kind of, you know, jumping ahead, but, but with the knowledge you have today, you had mentioned that you wanted to find a doctor who would basically just be your point person and just tell you what to do. Right. And I know that's something that I wanted as well. Like, I'm just super sick. I want to find somebody who's going to tell me, Matt, do this, this and this, and you're going to get better. But looking back and now understanding how, how complicated chronic Lyme disease is, do you think that 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 mindset maybe set you up for a failure moving forward? Yes. And I can tell you've absolutely been through this experience because I, it was the easy way out and it was extremely overwhelmed, like I mentioned, but it was absolutely not the way to go about things and is not the way I go about things today. I've really developed a confidence in my intuition and in just knowing my body. And I think that is imperative when you have Lyme disease because everything is so bio-individual. Everyone reacts differently. I always say, you know, you and I could get bit by a tick, the same tick, the same time, the same day, you're going to present and have completely different issues than I will. 
And so really getting to know your body. And, and I think, again, confidence is key to start learning and tracking how you react to things. And if that means jumping around to different doctors, then, and it a lot of times does, then that's, then so be it, I guess. So talk to us about, you just gave us a lot of really powerful statements there. And you said, learn how to track and identify things that are affecting you. So what do you mean by that? So were, were there certain foods or certain activities or certain environmental triggers that were causing you to have worse symptoms? Sure. I, I had to cease um, going to certain workouts that were hot and like the heat bothered me, the intensity, you know, running cardio, my heart, you know, what the, the heart palpitations and racing, there were certain things that I had to start altering. Um, I was losing a lot of weight. So I was eating, I, my dietary restrictions weren't that much, which is very abnormal for Lyme. Um, I, I'm now gluten-free. Um, but back then I could eat everything. And actually my Lyme doctor, um, asked me to eat everything and told me to just have a full diet. If it wasn't obviously bothering me because I wanted to keep my weight on, um, for healing purposes. Um, I started watching how I reacted to different, um, treatments, whether it be antibiotics or herbs or just anything. And I mean, the list, the it's a laundry list of things I've tried at this point, but really monitoring what worked for me and what was not going to have any effect or an adverse effect, adverse effect. Were you doing this intuitively before you got diagnosed, meaning before you knew you had Lyme disease, were you identifying these reactions you were having and responding to them? So you wouldn't feel as bad as you were. Um, yes. Although I felt fairly helpless because a lot of what I did didn't help. I mean, I would try to sleep more, but I would wake up still exhausted. Um, looking at a computer screen all day didn't help my neurological symptoms. My tingling and my face got worse, certain things like that. But it was very hard to ignore when you were working, you know, at that time, 60 hour weeks. Um, so there wasn't a whole lot that I could do, but obviously, yes, at certain times, my symptoms were more sensitive than others. Talk to us about the, it sounds like you had a lot of visual sensitivities, as you mentioned earlier, and you said being on a computer screen was hard and you had a lot of sensory overload. So when you were sharing that with your doctors at the time, I'm just curious, pre-Lyme, what were they saying that could be caused from? I mean, that, that came out of the blue and that's like a really debilitating symptom. Again, one that's commonly associated with neurological Lyme. Was that just kind of like dismissed or were they saying that could be a possible other condition that was causing all those symptoms? Every single one chalked it up to stress. Um, every single doctor minus a doctor that thought, oh, well, your head hurts sometimes and maybe I'll treat you for migraines. Um, and I actually felt lucky because I had had nothing really, again, in my health history, nothing emotional um, or just anything physically. And so I actually am glad that I didn't get diagnosed because most people do get diagnosed with a rheumatoid arthritis or something very general that doesn't really get to the root cause. And then they're treating rheumatoid arthritis for the rest of their lives and they never get to the bottom of it. So I do feel lucky. And I am a very rare case that I was not misdiagnosed. 
So let's talk to us now about the transition from the neurologist who you spent a short time with in New York City, who did all these, these PET scans and all these diagnostics, to this world-renowned Lyme specialist that you saw who you thought was going to just give you this magic cure. Um, sorry, can you read the, the question? Sure. So talk to us about the transition from the neurologist in New York City to this world-renowned doctor in, in, in um, you know, this Lyme specialist who you thought was going to be the person to just tell you what to do and get you cured. You know, what was that appointment like with this doctor? What was the treatment and what was the outcome of your first appointment? So my, uh, my neuro, my neurologist in the city at the time said, you know, I'm a close friend of this doctor and I can get you into him. And, and he said, but you know, he's going to put you on a lot of antibiotics. And I knew that this doctor had written books and had just been in the Lyme community for years and traveled and did conferences and et cetera. And so that obviously piqued my interest. And I thought, okay, this guy has credentials and he's been in this world for decades. Um, if I have this opportunity, I shouldn't turn it down because he's not taking new patients right now. Um, so I ended up making an appointment, getting in, um, and I went through a, a long, long initial appointment, um, going through everything, going through all of the tests and the bloods that I had done prior, um, and kind of building a game plan and talking about just the intricacies of the disease itself. And I started, um, I actually got a glutathione push that day and it helped a lot. And I had not, you know, gotten anything like that. Um, but, um, before, and so it helped my eyesight, which is a really crazy feeling because nothing had helped my, my, my light sensitivity. And then I started on antibiotics that day as well. So moving forward, once you left this doctor, what was your treatment plan? Was it just antibiotics? Was it antibiotics and IVs like glutathione or was it, you know, something else? It was primarily antibiotics. That was the, the primary, um, I guess, structure of the protocol. So with that came probiotic support, um, herbals here and there, um, some other, some glutathione and or NAC, um, some other supplementation, but primarily antibiotics. And I'm talking multiple antibiotics. I was on four to six antibiotics every day, um, with that doctor for the majority of the time I saw him. Do you recall the names of some of the antibiotics that you were on? Oh my gosh. Every, everyone in the market cycled, um, hydroxychloroquine. I stayed on throughout the whole, throughout the whole time he treated me, um, cephalosporins, um, amoxicillin or azithromycin. I, I, um, I went on some antiparasitics, um, Alinea. I, I've literally, I think I went on every prescription drug associated with Lyme disease at some point, it was just kind of, again, cycling through different, different mixes. So when you first started your treatment, did you feel better or did you feel worse? I definitely, um, that was a time again, where migraines had started within the few months prior. Um, and I had felt some, I had felt sick some, you know, I had felt unwell and worse some, but I have to say within maybe four months, 
six months, my migraines did go away. Um, antibiotics, I, you know, would not have done it the same way if I'm going back. But I do think that the Lyme had, a, had by that time been mounting more of an attack on my brain. And I am grateful and do think that's the one benefit I had of going on antibiotics, heavy antibiotics, um, but wish I had done it for a lot shorter period of time. So did you have a Herx reaction, Liz, when you first started? Did you get like, you know, an a, a extreme die-off reaction that caused you to feel worse when you first started treatment? Like in the, you know, the first couple of weeks? I did feel, I did feel, feel poorly, but I was not, um, I was not bedridden or anything, but I had, I definitely felt poorly where I had worse headaches or just worse grogginess and just ups and downs of symptoms and, and worse symptoms than I had had prior to getting on the meds. And Liz, how long did that last for the, the herxing in the beginning and the worsening of your symptoms? Gosh, I want to say three to four months. And then at around the four month mark, you realized, wow, I went from feeling bad to worse to now migraines are almost gone. It sounds like. Yes. I mean, they definitely made me feel better. Um, I definitely felt a lot of improvement, um, over time. Um, so it, it turned into, I guess, more of a positive. I really didn't have terrible gut issues. Um, some candida issues, but I don't know how my gut even <laughs> made it through that time period. Um, but eventually it was definitely suppressing the symptoms, um, and the Herxheimer reaction reactions that kind of dissipated. So Liz, Rich and I have coined the term, the antibiotic loop or the antibiotic cycle, which is where many people we have interviewed will go on antibiotics, feel a little bit better. They go off and they feel just as bad as they did before the antibiotics. They go back on the antibiotics, they get some relief and the cycle repeats over and over and over again. And many times we, we see people do that for years. And by years, we mean, you know, anywhere from three to 10 to 20 years where they're on these antibiotics for a really long time. And then they have some other damage as a result of long-term antibiotics. So it sounds like that's something that you were sort of building up to where you were becoming dependent on the antibiotics to get the little bit of relief that you were getting with your migraines and your symptoms. Is that an accurate assessment of what you think was going on at the time? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I did two of those cycles of getting off. Um, and I felt actually worse than I did before minus the migraines, but I couldn't leave my apartment. It was just, I mean, it was, it was terrible getting off the antibiotics. It was just a whole like wave of just everything, every symptom I had had times at least three. And to, again, the point where I just didn't even want to leave my apartment. Um, and I had done that twice. And that's how I realized this is not working. And he kept, my doctor kept, um, you know, changing the mix of antibiotics up and thinking that would tell me that would help. And then quickly after, you know, a couple months and two, two times getting off with, with such a relapse, I said, no, this is not working. I got to figure something else out. And it has to be drastic because I, this is just such a dramatic, um, just relapse of symptoms. Liz, how long was your antibiotic cycle? Was it, was it a year? Was it five years? Give us some context here. A little over a year and a half when I was on full-time antibiotics. And just, again, I'm going to kind of, you know, summarize a little bit here, but you're treating with one of the world's leading Lyme disease specialists. You're getting treated with, with oral antibiotics and you're getting worse when you come off them. 
And his response is, well, I'm just going to change up the antibiotics a little bit and this is going to work. And then that didn't work. And then you went through that same pattern again. So looking back, I mean, it just seems kind of wild from our standpoint that that this is one of the specialists in the world to treat you this way. And you didn't have much success, it sounds like. Correct. Yeah. I try not to be, you know, hindsight's always 2020. And I try not to, I try to think that every bit of my journey is ha- happened for a reason, but at the same time, it's, you're even in a lower place when you go to one of these top well, world renowned doctors and you realize you have to figure out on your own. Again, this is where the co- body confidence and intuition about how you're feeling that this isn't right. And it doesn't matter how many people say this is right. It's not right. And it's not working for you. And you need to move on and find something else. So the reason I'm, I'm focusing on this list is because we've had so many people tell us, if only I can get in to see this, this, the best Lyme specialist in California or the best Lyme specialist in New York, I know I'm going to get better. And we've seen so many guests like you treat with those same doctors. And frankly, many of them have told us have spent, you know, anywhere between 60 and hundred grand to see them for a short period of time and not have good results. And then they found somebody else who's helped them gain more, you know, more progress than those specialists. So I guess that what I'm trying to get to here is, you know, for people listening, you can have success with other doctors and you don't have to see one of these leading doctors to have success. So is it something you'd agree with for people that, that aren't able to get into these doctors that have you know, ridiculous wait lists or ridiculously expensive that they can get better by, as you call it, having this body confidence and listening to their intuition. Absolutely. I mean, I would not put emphasis on the name of the doctor. I would put emphasis on people's ability to help read your body. What's worked for you in the past has the ability to try to do different treatments has the courage. A lot of these doctors that have the doctors that healed me had such incredible courage because you can't go. And this is why I started my Instagram account. No one and no one that knew me for the first 25 years of my life would ever assume that I would start an Instagram account about being sick because I have such pride. I grew up with a twin brother. I wanted to always be tough and you can't go on PubMed and find these things. Research is not supported. These other, the, the, um, I guess treatments that work for me are forward thinking and they are more natural, more integrative. And we know that's not always supported typically, um, in, in this world, um, for different reasons. And these doctors need to have courage and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to see someone with a big, bright name and shining lights that you've heard of um, to get well. And then of course you have to believe that you will get well, um, I think to get over the finish line. And not to discredit the work that you had done with this doctor, because I do believe that the antibiotics did help you in my opinion. So I think that that work was important, but again, I think that, that highlighting that other things that you did because you decided to say, I'm going to take control of my own health and this isn't working and I'm going to find something that's going to help me. That was the reason you were able to continue on and get even better than you were then. So talk to us about Liz, the transition from this, this world renowned Lyme specialist to your next doctor that you decided to go visit to move on beyond the antibiotic cycle and get different type of treatments. Yes. So I knew of course, at the time that my time was up kind of in this, that cycle. And, um, I had, 
started digging online discussion boards. And I, I really wanted to hear stories of people that have he had healed themselves. And I also was very interested in the people that had tried many things because the more, the more treatments people have tried, um, the more places they've traveled, you know, the more they've obviously experienced and more knowledge they've gained. Um, so I started reading a lot about stem cells. That was very popular at the time. And obviously a fairly new treatment. Um, not, not a lot of studies or any studies, I think, you know, in connection with Lyme. And I started hearing about, um, these clinics in Germany. Um, they, you know, the Germans are really well known for their alternative and integrate integrative therapies and hearing about some of these successes. Um, I would kind of focused on one, one clinic that used your own adipose or fat stem cells or your own blood stem cells. And I knew at the time that I wanted to, I was going to do something like this. I wanted them to be derived from my own body and not another source. Um, there are other risks and just this, that was something I felt more comfortable with. Some people love embryonic cell treatment and that's really worked for them. But I just thought I'm, I'm new to this. I'm going to stick with it being a derive from my, my own body. Um, and I was kind of looking for a sign and at the time, um, through, um, actually my husband's family, they knew someone that went to this exact clinic a few years earlier and he had traveled the world. He and his wife both, both had Lyme disease. He had traveled the world and tried almost everything. And so I got, ended up getting on a call with him and he said, Liz, out of all of the money I've put into this, this is the only experience that has really been worth it and is worth going there. And I took that 100% as my sign. I immediately signed up to go and spend two weeks. And that kind of set me off on my next path. So are you comfortable with sharing us, sharing with us the name of the clinic in Germany that you went to go visit? Sure. Um, it was called Infusio in Frankfurt. And for context, you're not the only guest to tell us that you went to Infusio to receive stem cells. And I have to, I, and Rich, correct me if I'm wrong, I think every single one of them has had major success as a result of going to Infusio. So share with us before we go on to that journey, the difference, because I'm curious, what is the difference between using your own fat or blood stem cells and then something like an embryonic stem cell? Well, um, some people would say nothing. Um, there's, there is, um, and it's, I don't want to sound alarming because again, people have used all types of stem cells and they have been healed and had wonderful outcomes and believe in them. But, um, embryonic stem cells are derived from a different source. Um, and they have a tumor risk, um, doesn't mean cancer, but they do have a tumor risk. Um, and, uh, I actually consider going to India and doing them, um, at the time at a clinic there, but again, just being so new to this and I, wanted, I felt most comfortable going to Infusio. Um, so I don't, I think the only risk with stem cells that is, it seems like there's a smaller population that experienced this, but, um, who knows, I don't know the exact facts, um, is that some people had a histamine reaction where maybe, um, activated their immune system too much and, um, it did not work for them as well. Um, but again, I don't know the stats, so it's, I don't want to speak, I don't want to put anything down or like discredit any, anyone's experience, but it, it was a thing that absolutely healed me. 
So Liz, from the standpoint of risk, thank you. That made, that was very helpful, that information. But I'm curious beyond that, are you aware from an efficacy standpoint or you know, how these stem cells can actually target and treat Lyme? Is one type of stem cell maybe better than another to treat chronic Lyme disease in your opinion? So embryonic stem cells are very powerful, right? Because they're pulled from either the placenta or they're, they're a very, I guess, more pure, I don't, I don't know how to exact describe it, source and, and their strength is, it, there's a, they're a high strength um, versus your body. And, and some people would debate that, I think. Um, but I think the whole general tactic of stem cells is that it's, they're going to areas in your body that have weaknesses that need to be healed. And they're kind of healing your, your constitution versus taking an antibiotic and trying to kill it or taking an herb and trying to kill it um, that way. Um, and I think with me having Lyme for so long that it was probably so embedded into different parts of my body and different tissue, et cetera, that the antibiotic route was never going to get me to the finish line. I needed something that would boost my immune system, my strength and have me have my body kind of fight it and get it into a dormant position. So Liz, talk to us about in regards to stem cells, we've had two other guests on this podcast tell us that they had, even before they were sick, they had issues with allergies and histamines. And when they got stem cells, they were really sick for several months because of, of histamine responses. And I think that's because while the stem cells are circulating through your entire body and your blood and your tissues and your, and your brain, they're actually rebuilding your cells, as you noted, and that creates a histamine response. So is that what you were referring to as a risk to stem cells? Um, I think that, I, you know, I had, I had kind of given myself a year mark. They said a lot of the healing is done in the first year after treatment. And I definitely had some ups and downs for sure. Um, I think certain things were inflamed maybe as they were being healed. I slept a lot. I really tried to be easy on my body because I do think that I was feeling, you know, the healing actually happening. And it was, it was, it was different, you know, whether it was fatigue or inflammation or whatever. Um, but I did not experience long-term like dietary issues or sensitivity, um, that I think maybe others did. Um, but I actually tested negative through hygienics for Lyme within three months after I got my stem cells, which was far earlier than I ever thought. I, I thought I would at least have to wait a year. I know this is a very bold statement, but in your situation, it really sounds like stem cells were the treatment that saved your life. Absolutely. I would say so. Um, and I want to give credit where credit is due. And, um, you know, it wasn't just stem cells. It was a two week program, heavy detox, red light therapy, lymphatic drainage, um, just all sorts of really amazing, like alternative care, um, to prepare the cellular terrain, um, to including detox and just strengthening. Then they derive the stem cells and then they give you support. They inject the stem cells via IV and they give you support after for a few days. And then you went back for a follow-up, um, for a few weeks, three or four months later, um, and did kind of another boosting type, um, process procedure where they utilize kind of what antibodies and I guess the benefits from the, 
the first treatment um, and gave you kind of another boost. Um, it's, it's a little complex <laughs> to get into, but um, I, I absolutely think it saved my life. Again, I tested negative very early. Um, after a year, I got pregnant, which was my end goal. And Congratulations. Yeah, I can't. I owe them a lot. <laughs> so I do want to come back to the histamine issue because we've, we get this question often regarding stem cells, probably the most common question we get about stem cells. And it sounds like your, your journey was consistent with our other guests where within the first few months of getting the stem cells, it is an up and down journey. And it could be possibly because of the histamine response, which generates inflammation, which is, you know, a lot of times causing our symptoms, but overall in the long run, you, those, those, histamine responses and your up and down became very much a level, just feeling better situation for you. Yes, it definitely did. Um, again, it really leveled out for me. I was on very few supplements. I was just really focused on giving my body a break for that year. Um, and again, things would like flare pains, you know, different feeling symptoms. And I would, the doctor would always say, you know, just you'll get through it, right? It, you know, it's, it's healing. It's healing. Just keep telling yourself it's healing. Um, which, you know, I always just try to keep in a good mental space and just be easy on myself for a year. So Liz, the reason I'm focusing on this is because I'm trying to help prep people for this journey. Cause so many people are, are probably going to go down the stem cell road, especially more and more in the future. And I think it's important for them to know that, you know, not to be discouraged if they have an up and down experience after, and in the long term, they're going to have significant gain, but also talk to us about that. Like you mentioned it's not just stem cells, right? So we do know when you go to infusio, the first few weeks, they're really just preparing your body for the stem cell infusion. And they're doing things like red light therapy. They're doing things like immune boosting, you know, herbals, and they're doing a ton of work to get your body primed to respond to the stem cells as best as possible. Is that, is that consistent with your experience as well? Yes, they definitely did a lot of prep, um, before. So I don't think, I think I heard of someone at Boston at, at, in Boston at the time where you could just drive up, they prepare, take and prepare your stem cells and you get an IV and you go home. And I really wanted an all encompassing program that focused on the pre and post treatment as well. And do you feel that, um, so talk to us about the post, because we, we did hear a lot about the pre, you gave us some ideas, but once you got through the, the pre-work and you got your stem cells, did you stay in Germany and do some post-work or did you come home and then do some home therapies or home follow-up, you know, post-stem cells? I, um, I came home after a few days and I, um, they gave me, they gave us some supplements, like, you know, some histamine related, related supplements, but really, I mean, they said, let the stems do their work. I didn't go get massive IVs or any like detoxes. I, I basically, you know, let the stems do their work. I didn't want to alter what they were trying to do. And, you know, I just really strictly followed um, the clinic's protocol after and just kind of laid off a lot of my other invasive therapies. Um, you know, again, like the calming therapies or, help with circulate things that help with circulation or things like that. Sure. I, I kept up with, but nothing that was going to kind of rock the boat from an immune system standpoint or a constitution standpoint. And within a year of getting the stem cells, it sounds like you had your life back and you were pregnant, right? Yes. Um, I, in a year, I guess it was almost exactly a year. I got pregnant with my son 
um, happened quickly, which I also didn't expect and was so grateful for, um, and had a great pregnancy, um, and had my son a few months before COVID started in, in late 2019. Talk to us about, I mean, obviously stem cells were the most important piece of your healing journey, but was there anything else you did that was noteworthy? Things that have helped you just feel better when you're having a bad herx or had a bad herx, or when you're just really down, whether it be physically or even you know mentally or emotionally that you can recommend to our audience that was very helpful for you to get through those hard times? Um, I would say... Um, exercise is, has, and has to be a part of my life. Thankfully, I was able to do some form of exercise for the most part through my whole journey. Again, I could not do the boot camps and things like no way during when I had, when, the, when I was in the thick of line, but moving is important for me, whether it's yoga or something, you know, more cardio esque, um, because I think my lymphatic system slow, or I know my lymphatic system slow and my circulation isn't the greatest. Um, like my, my father has Raynaud's and so it's like, you know, his fingers get cold and et cetera. So I'm like, I know that's probably a risk for me and, and my fingers get cold. And, um, so I, I just know that's kind of, again, knowing your body and knowing that I have to move. If I don't extra, if I stop exercising, I, I go down a steep, dark hole really quickly. And everything in my body is stagnant, um, and not working and not healing. Um, I've really, I went last week, I was at a biomagnetism conference seminar. I learned, learned how to, um, do biomagnetism versus I've been a patient for, years. Um, that's magnet therapy it's utilizes muscle testing. I first heard about it when someone told me it gotten her over the finish line, um, in healing. And, um, so I, at, you know, at the time I was desperate in the middle of the two doctors and treatments. And I was like, sure, I'll go try this. It looks kind of nuts, but why not? I had really never done anything like that before. And it's something that I've stayed consistent with, um, over the, over the last four years. And, I've had magnets at home and I use them myself as much as I can, but I really wanted to learn the trade and learn how to muscle test, um, on my own for my family and myself, uh, we're, and we're moving soon. So I won't be near my, my practitioner as much. So that's been a really cool and non-invasive can, can learn it and, you know, learned a good, good amount about, um, the methodology in a week and can kind of perform it on yourself. And even just abdominal pains or certain things that are that things that are going on, I can put magnets on it on the place that's in pain and they, the pain usually goes away, which is crazy. And I used to have to go to the ER for abdominal pain. So, um, unexplained abdominal pain. So that has been a really cool, um, thing that I've followed for years now. Um, what else diet, I think is important, you know, elimination diet, seeing what you react well to, if it clears your brain fog, et cetera, always, always just keep playing with that because I had no dietary restrictions. And then I recently cut out gluten and my brain fog got so much better. Um, lymphatic drainage massages for me back to the lymphatic or the lymphatic circulatory conversation. Um, Detox IVs, I think just kind of keeping up with your body. Glutathione again, help me, um, just keep things moving and et cetera. Um, I just, this year have done, I just actually this week did another stem cell therapy 
And earlier this year, I did exosome therapy. So just knowing that that works and that can give you, that can give me a boost and it works for me. Um, I'm kind of riding that wave of just knowing my body reacts well. Um, and also did a new ozone therapy this week. So yeah, I do a lot. <laughs> I try a lot. That was amazing. All that information you just gave us. I have so many notes that I'm writing here, but so I, I just want to circle. No, this is, this is great. I want to circle back to some of the things you said. So um, first I want to ask you about the, the follow-up stem cell therapy. So it sounds like you're doing subsequent stem cell infusions to keep your body as, as healthy as possible. Is that what, is that what you're doing? Yes. Yeah, so I think in the year of COVID, which my son was three months when COVID hit and I stopped everything because I didn't have a help at the time. We had been with our families for a part of it, which really helped. They were great help, but still I stopped exercising. I stopped. I wasn't near my lymphatic drainage practitioner. I wasn't near biobank. I wasn't near anything that I could do. Um, we actually went and lived with our family for a while families in Florida and Texas, which again was wonderful to have them around and so uplifting, but I just did not have the balance and this, you know, keeping up with a schedule of just kind of minimal healthcare that I was doing. And especially post-pregnancy, it's tough on your body and you have to heal and give yourself some time. And again, went back to my old lifestyle of just burning all the candles at every end, um, which doesn't work. Um, so learn the hard way again, and have just been working the past six months on getting my life and my body back to where it was feeling great. And, um, I have been pretty successful at doing that. I feel a lot better. Um, exosomes really help and, and uh, very anti-inflammatory, but for a short period, I did cell core, which is a new, uh, company that supplement company that they really focus on detoxing and drainage and did their drainage program. And it really helped my, that lymph node that was, has been swollen for years, finally went down for the first time in like nine years. So that was great. And then did some more stem cells, um, and ozone recently. So that's my laundry list. This is all great stuff. And that's, but talk to us about why are exosomes different than stem cells? You mentioned their short-term relief. So, and, and I think before we get to that question, I think it's really important to note that because you, you were going through COVID, you weren't able to exercise, you didn't have access to a lot of your tools to keep you going in your healing journey, and yet you didn't ever crash, which is consistent with what most people would have gone through if they didn't have stem cells. So that in itself, I think, is proof that the initial therapy had worked, and then you decided to do a follow-up stem cell infusion because you realized that you needed to get yourself boosted up again because you weren't doing all the things you knew you should have for, for, you know, throughout COVID. So what, you know, what are, if you can come back to what are exosomes and how are they different than stem cells? You're asking me all of these scientific questions and especially put on the spot, I'm probably going to just butcher it. But um, I think just high level, they're the cell signalers from stem cells. So when stem cells go and do their jobs, they put off these exosomes. Um, and so they provide these exosomes can be, can be embryotic, um, exosomes, but they don't carry the same risks that stem cells do. And I think that they're more a faster anti-inflammatory response and more dramatic than stem cells. But for me, they didn't have the longer term effect that stem cells had. 
So I'm going to come back to the, the term you mentioned earlier, which I'm going to borrow from you, and I will certainly credit you, is the body confidence, Liz. Because I think it's a really important term, and that's really just listening to your own body, right? But the body confidence term, I think, is so powerful because you realize that you had Raynaud's in your family, you had poor circulation, and as a result, you knew your lymphatic system wasn't moving the way it should, which could harbor these, these toxins and, and dead pathogens. So you said, I know I need to exercise, and that was very helpful, you mentioned earlier on. But when you were really sick, how did you do limited exercise to ensure you were getting your lymphatic system moving and you weren't essentially poisoning yourself with all the treatment that you were doing? Yeah. I mean, I just, I did again, very, I was very easy on my body when I had to. And if that meant that I went to a slow yoga class, which was very slow for me because I had been doing these hit crazy boot camp you know, neon lights, people screaming at you type of thing. That was a big step down for me. And again, I so appreciate the fact that I could have worked. I could work out because many Lyme patients cannot work out for years and years and can would immediately get sick the moment they tried. So, but for me, this was a huge step back, but I just would alter it to something a lot more like low level calming, calming the nervous system, but still somehow getting the circulatory effects, um, and, you know, releasing the same similar chemicals, just not on such an intense level. So Liz, you also mentioned that you recently, it sounds like very recently tried some new ozone therapy and we didn't really touch on that. So did you find in your journey, at least that ozone was another powerful tool to help you in your healing journey? I did. And, um, I really, again, keep track of um, some trusted resources and friends that, you know, have been dealing with Lyme. So I heard about this new machine about a year ago, and I've just kind of kept my finger on the pulse and my ear to the ground of people who have tried it. And it seemed really interesting. Um, but so I, that's, I, ozone had helped me in the past. I had heard amazing things. And so I decided, and I, you know, felt comfortable with its safety. It's been being used for about a year now, I think. So that's why I've felt like I it was time to try it. So I guess the, the two questions I have to follow up with that is you were on traditional ozone before and it was helpful. And now there's this new ozone that came out that you wanted to try because you thought it could be even more helpful. So the first question is, what is this new type of ozone? And then as a follow-up, was it even better than the traditional ozone you experienced, you know, prior to trying this ozone? So, um, it is very different. Um, the ozone that I'd done prior was just, um, I did 10 pass ozone in, in Germany. I'd done ozone here in New York where, you know, they just drop the, the IV bag, you fill up a bag, they, they, they add ozone and then they, they put that bag back through an IV. Um, I'd always felt benefit had always, you know, liked it. I know, I know some people that it had just doing ozone and to put their Lyme into remission or dormancy. So it, it can really help people. Like, I guess when people are first looking for answers, I say, go try ozone because it's put a couple of my friends back on the map of health. So, um, this machine called EBO2 or EBU, um, is very, a lot more involved. Um, I hesitate to use the word dialysis, but it's dial it's dialysis like where they say it's almost like a car wash for your blood. So what they're doing is you have two, two needles in each arm. One is taking the blood out. It's putting it through light therapy, um, UVB, there's some red light, um, there's red light therapy on either end. So right before it's about to go back into your arm and then right when it's coming out, 
and it is filtering the blood. It's pumping ozone into the blood as it's filtering. And it also has like an off container where whatever is being filtered is landing in this other side container. So it's filtering debris, certain proteins, heavy metals, uh, they just, just certain um, cholesterol, just certain debris in the blood. Um, and then the remaining blood goes back post ozone, post filter is going back into your other arm. Um, and before that back through another like red light therapy. So, which, you know, can kill antimicrobial, et cetera, do a lot. Um, and, and red light therapy has so many benefits as well. And, um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot going on there, but they basically for a summary, call it a car wash for your blood. And it is similar to a dialysis machine. Um, and I, I have friends that have had incredible outcomes and so was glad to do it and felt really good after. So the final thing I want to talk to you about before handing you back over to Rich is biomagnetism, because admitted, admittedly, the first time we heard about biomagnetism, I was like, no way that's real. And, you know, here we are almost two years later. And I'm like, boy, oh boy, was I wrong because we've had so many people, every single person talk to us about this, tell us that it was really helpful in their journey from both the diagnostic standpoint, but also treating, right? So it sounds like it was so powerful for you that you not only used it to treat, but now you've learned how to actually become a practitioner or, or how it works to get behind the scenes and administer biomagnetism. So I guess first, give us an idea, what is biomagnetism? Um, gosh, biomagnetism is again, the use of magnets and all the magnets are utilized in pairs. So the North and the South pole, and it's, it used, needs to be used in pairs. And it was created by a Mexican doctor in the eighties. And, um, it's, kind of been spreading since, and it's still, it's, it's gaining popularity. Um, but essentially you're placing the magnets on certain areas of your body that coincides with whatever ailment, parasite, um, bacteria, viral fungal that you're, that you are experiencing. And these doctors that have been practicing this, and this original doctor has found hundreds of pairs. Um, and it utilizes muscle testing to read your body and see exactly what you're suffering from and what pairs to use on your body. Again, I thought it was insane when I first saw the video. Um, but again, it was at my, at kind of when my first, uh, protocol had failed me and I was just open to anything. And now I feel like I'm a pretty logical person. Like, Oh, that doesn't make any sense. Like that looks crazy. And that was the old me. And now I'm like, listen, if it's not going to hurt me, let's do it. Like, who cares? I'm open to it. I I'm very curious. I want to see if things work, um, and can help me obviously. Like when you're not feeling well, you just want anything to bring you back to health. That's safe. And my, and, or I do at least. Um, so these pairs and even again, I mentioned, I use them just with acute issues when I did not learn the technique. Um, I always had pairs and my, my practitioner would send me home with certain pairs that had resonated with me, or even I could do in my husband, um, if he was having similar issues, whatever, um, or my doctor could muscle test him. And, um, it's just, it's, yeah, it's pretty wild, but I have definitely felt the effects. I actually had really terrible skin issues, uh, breakout this 
really unique breakout. It was very uncomfortable on my face after I got stem cells and I couldn't find anyone to help me. And it was, it was so uncomfortable. It was so visibly like difficult. It was just, and it was painful and I couldn't find anyone for months and went back to Germany, had asked them to help me. It was like, I can't live my life like this. And I ended up, Germany said, I can't help you. We don't know what's going on. And I came back to um, the U S and went finally to my biomagnetism doctor and he fixed it within three weeks. So it's just done incredible things for me that I never thought it could help with. So this is another really powerful explanation you just gave us of biomagnetism. And I think there's two parts to it. So the first part is there's, there's muscle testing, which is more of like diagnostic. What, what viruses, you know, what viruses, bacteria, parasites, et cetera, do you have in your body? And then what magnetic pairs can be used to essentially treat or kill these, these pathogens in your body, right? And you gave us a pretty good example of, of, okay, there's different types of magnets that are used to treat different types of pathogens, but how does the diagnostic or the muscle testing component work? So now that you're trained in this, like, how would you, if you were, if you were performing muscle testing on me, what would you actually do? And what, what's the process to identify, like, what is going on in Matt's body? How does that work? So, and there's one big thing that I didn't mention about biomagnetism is it the magnets help, um, balance the pH in those areas of the body where you're placing them. And again, those, those areas are coinciding with whatever you're suffering from. So alkalinity and, um, just the pH scale is really kind of like the Bible, I think, or, you know, a big, the crux of what biomagnetism, um, works on. So, um, the diagnostic tool of muscle testing. So also another concept that was just so foreign and alien, like to me before my whole Lyme journey, and even just initially learning about it is a concept that your, um, body and your muscles react if you're sensitive to something. Um, and it's bioenergetic testing and it can, your body's kind of communicating with you from with how it's suffering or what it's suffering from. So you utilize muscle testing and you, I think you just have to kind of YouTube it to see how it works. There's so many different ways to do it as well. Um, biomagnetism typically uses your legs. Um, you can use your arms or your fingers. There's, I learned a lot last week. Um, so well, you, you take a magnet and put it up to my leg and see if I have a reaction. Is that like, you know, I'm sure I'm curious what actually happens when somebody's getting muscle tested, you know, like for even, I know you said it could be different, but in your case, the way you were trained and what you learned last week, how would you muscle test somebody physically? So, um, my practitioner utilizes legs. So, um, one leg will, uh, contract, uh, muscularly contract to be shorter than the other when you're lying down. Um, so that's typically what is used for biomagnetism. <laughs> I'm going to sound crazy. No, it's really cool. And don't you, it sounds like, I mean, look, everybody listening to this podcast is open to all kinds of ideas and whatever it takes to help us feel better. And this sounds like it was so powerful that, and I think another thing here that I want to circle back on is so many of us in the chronic Lyme community experience pain in some part of our body or many parts of our body. And you said that you were literally ending up in the ER because you had such bad abdominal pain. And because of biomagnetism, you were able to solve that pain and not have to go to the ER. And that's a really, really powerful tool. So although it sounds a little crazy, I mean, look, we're all open to stuff like this. So, you know, and, and the, the fact that your, your muscles and your legs will contract, and it sounds like one leg will become a little bit shorter because of muscle contraction. That's how you're able to identify if you're reacting to that magnet, which then is correlated to a pathogen. Is that the idea behind it? Um, yes. Well, you're there. 
they're asked, but like energetically asking the body, um, about certain things. And some people place vials on the body of, of certain pathogens or certain medications or to learn. Um, so yes, they're basically asking the body. <laughs> so if somebody's listening to this podcast and they want to learn more about biomagnetism, it sounds like you are now a, are you, are you a, a biomagnetism or <laughs> practitioner? Can you actually muscle test somebody? I've been practicing, um, but I've really just learned it for, to at least use it on, again, my family, um, or like myself, my husband, my husband's pretty open. He's pretty, he's, he's amazing. He's like, sure. You know, he's, he's an open mind. He's curious as well. He's into health and wellness and taking care of himself. Um, I technically, yes, I can. I think might be something that I try to do and help people with down the road. And I have family members and, and friends around me who want to try, really want me to perform the, it perform uh, muscle testing and, you know, try it out on them. Um, but just for personal knowledge for now, I'm again, I'm always curious and always want to learn, especially more about things that have helped me in the past. So give us an idea, my, you know, this is my final question, I promise. I know Rich is going to kill me because I, I can't shut up now. But th- th- give us an idea as to, Rich is shaking his head for those I can't see, which is pretty much nobody but us. C- give us an idea as to how your health has improved. And, and I have to say, many, many people, and it's the exception that when you go through childbirth, that you don't have a significant setback when you're dealing with Lyme disease. And you didn't, right? And you're just getting better and better and better, which shows the things you did were very successful in your healing journey. So if you had to look back, what percentage would you say you're recovered from chronic Lyme disease? And give us an idea of something you're doing today that you never dreamed you'd be doing when you're at your worst. Um, well, I definitely did struggle for sure. in that, that year after pregnancy, I don't, I don't want to discount that. Um, and I really want to emphasize not a lot of people emphasize the care that the mother needs. It's all about the baby. And it is so extremely important. I mean, for seven months, my son was waking up at least once a night and I was a zombie half the time because of that. And I don't even think that was necessarily because of Lyme. It's every mother you need a good night's sleep. You're in, you're possibly breastfeeding. They really don't emphasize enough that you, ha- you have to heal. Your body has gone through trauma. I mean, beautiful trauma, but trauma. Um, and so I definitely, that's why I've done the exosomes, the stem cells this year, the EBO2 is because I was getting, I was making up for lost time that I wasn't taking care of myself. Um, I think that I'm, I'm able to live a pretty normal life and I am so extremely grateful for that. I don't think that I have really many like permanent issues. I still have some sensitive sensitivity to light at night. Um, I have some fatigue sometimes, but I live a much more balanced life. And I think that also comes with me not being in my (laughs) twenties single in New York city anymore. And that's been helpful, um, you know, to be more family focused and, um, have a more balanced lifestyle but I think to your question, just, I would say I'm back to 80%, 90% of maybe what I would have been. Um, and to what I'm doing differently, everything, (laughs) I think, you know, I, I would look at me now listening to this podcast as like a normal, healthy person and be like, wow, this girl is like off the reservation. (laughs) And, um, the old logical Liz would be like, wow, this, this, yeah, she's lost it. But you, when you are sick and you're used to being a really active functioning person in society, 
it is in my personality to do anything possible to get healthy, to not be a burden on my family, to not be a burden on those around me, to live a happy life and focus on gratitude and to have a baby was obviously the biggest goal of mine and to have a family and move forward. So, um, I, I have done again, pretty much anything that I thought would not do me harm. (laughs) So Liz, let's talk about, uh, the mindset element of healing. Um, you grew up in a very traditional family. Um, you had a traditional Catholic education and now we're, we're hearing all these woo woo things coming out of your, uh, out of your mouth when you're talking about your healing journey. But what we haven't talked a lot about was your mindset and how your mindset played a role in your healing and how that had to change. So why don't you share that with us? Um, yeah, mindset, I think is so important. Um, I, I always say in whatever panels I've done or whatever that, and getting to know the individuals at the, at Infusio in Germany, the clinic in Germany, that they would tell me the minute that a patient walks through the door, we can tell if they, if it's this treatment's going to work for them or not. If they're really upset, negative, don't think, you know, just really negative about the treatment in general in their future, there's, there is a larger chance that it doesn't work as well for them, but if they come in and they're positive and they really want this to work and they're super hopeful, then there's a much higher chance that it will work for them. Um, and I thought that was so interesting because, you know, I thought that was a genuine observation and something that I've had to learn. And it, I struggle with every day. It's probably the biggest struggle for me, the mental side of it is you can easily have your mind go to the worst place, but in reality, and Joe Dispenza is, I think, incredible and has proven this, that he's done brain scans and proven that your body does not know if it's actually going through a situation or if you're versus you just thinking you're going through a situation. So as much as you can do for your mindset, I think is half the battle, at least. So let's talk to us about that. Uh, obviously, your survival software being triggered um, is going to cause you to suffer and it's going to interfere with your ability to heal. So what kinds of things did you do so that you could calm down your mind and prevent your software from, uh, from triggering and therefore interfere with your ability to heal? Um. You know, I've done actually some energy healing that has really helped with that. Um, And again, being around people with good energy, um, I have, I I like to help people and like to speak with people in similar situations, but if they have the mindset that they're never going to feel better, then it takes a toll on me. Um, And that's when it makes a relationship hard, I'll speak to anyone still. And I, I used to speak to people like every other day on the phone, mutual friends, I felt like, and that's why I started my Instagram account and my, my website. Um, but, um, I just think it's so important and to really know your boundaries. And I had, I felt like no boundaries looking back, you know, just social and wanting to be around people and whatever, and being thoughtful around, and maybe a little selfish around, who you're putting yourself around or what you're putting yourself around and how will it affect your health? Now, is it really being selfish or is it really just sort of guarding your mind and guarding your spirit from people who are unhealthy, right? And if somebody is emotionally unhealthy or somebody has what you are describing as a negative energy, that's something that will impact you and have a negative impact on your capacity to heal 
may be triggering your survival software and your uh, unhealthy mindset. So why don't you talk to us about how you had to make your peace with discerning who you'd spend time with and who you wouldn't as part of your healing journey. Um, yeah, I think again, it's been a really long journey to do that. Um, I'm still not always the best at that and you're right. It's not selfish. I call it selfish because I still feel guilt from it, I think. And I shouldn't, um, my husband is also a very, leads a very balanced lifestyle. He, you know, is, unless he's out, he's like in bed by nine 30. Like he's, he is someone I really look up to and is just incredible what his self-control in a lot of ways and balance. And so I'm so lucky to have him in my life because he inspires me to continue to stick to, you know, not pushing it, listening to your body, doing what you need to do for yourself. Because now, especially that my son's here, if I'm not taking care of myself, he's going to feel the repercussions and that's not okay, in my opinion. Um, so yes, it's, it's definitely not selfish. Um, and it's definitely been an evolution for me. So let's talk to us about now the beautiful side of Lyme, right? We, on this podcast and almost every other podcast, when we're talking about Lyme, we focus on the suffering, but not on what can sometimes be the benefit of going through the suffering or the things that we can learn about ourselves and about life only through suffering. So talk to us about the beautiful elements of Lyme disease and how it's changed what you know about yourself and it's changed the way you're living your life. That's a great question. Um, it's interesting, right before I started dating my husband and right before I started getting my Lyme symptoms, I remember sitting on the rooftop and the rooftop of my building alone in Flatiron one weekday night and saying, you know, I'm not going to ever marry to marry. I'm not going to settle. I like just got out of a relationship, which I wasn't happy in. And I, was, I dated, you know, different types of guys. And I was like, why haven't I found anyone? I'm getting to my late twenties. And I was like, I'm not going to settle. And then the other thing I, I, was kind of questioning was that I was in New York. I was living my dream. I at that time gotten a corporate retail job, buying merchandising and something that I thought I'd always wanted to do my end goal. And it wasn't fulfilling to me. And I was like, why, why, why have I kind of achieved a lot of what I've wanted to achieve, but I still feel like I don't have this depth or I still feel that I have this hollow feeling. What is, is there more to life? Like, there ha there has to be, I just, I just feel like there's a hole, you know? And again, in the next month or two, I started dating my husband and started getting Lyme symptoms. And obviously the husband part was incredible, but the Lyme part was not incredible for a very long time. Um, but I think has taught me so much. I look at life so differently. I appreciate every day. I'm grateful for every little thing that I have. And not that I wasn't grateful before, but I just look at it completely differently. I'm happy to have food on the table. I'm happy to wake up. I'm happy to just every little thing. And I think gratitude is so extremely important. Um, and it was just kind of crazy that it all happened simultaneously because it really did give me that depth in kind of a backwards way that I had asked for um, and is going to be a journey for the rest of my life. But it's also such a kind of, I think the benefit of me knowing about health from my son and my family when they want to hear my opinion <laughs> or they can maybe use it. Um, and what I've learned, um, I, I try to tell myself that will benefit those around me and, and myself in the long term. 
So talk to us now that you've discovered your purpose and you've discovered the emotional tools that you're now using and uh, preventing yourself from suffering as a result of those uh, discovering those tools, such as gratitude, how you're now using that to help other people and how that's caused you to have even a career change, right? You went from being this, um, you know, big four powerhouse accountant to now working in a very different way in, in a healing community. So talk to us about how that, you know, all of these things that you discovered has changed you even professionally. Um, yeah. So I, like I mentioned, I was working this corporate job that I thought I had always wanted to be in. Um, and it was at a big retailer and, uh, I, it was just kind of frustrating. I felt like I was one in a million and I was, and you know, I wasn't the CEO. So I, you know, wasn't making decisions like I thought I would be able to, and wasn't, you know, in the know is that like I thought I was and kind of in the weeds of a lot of things that maybe I didn't expect to be. And that's okay. I mean, that's how you, you know, you work your way up. But when I left my job, because I couldn't work for, I can only work three or four hours in the morning. Then I got migraines. Um, I ended up starting an, a, a business on my own time. So I could go to treatments. I could take a nap if I needed to, um, but still have something to do. Um, because I was in a very bad place if I had nothing to do and all my friends were working. My husband was working, I was home alone. And so I started this business and it ended up being an incredible adventure for me. I basically built a business on my own. I got uh, the product into a thousand retailers in a year. I got us on HSN. Um, I was on HSN many times, something I never thought like I would ever be on HSN, um, on TV, promoting a product. And um, it was a success, successful company. And I basically proved to myself that I could do that. I never knew I had it in me. I never thought that I'd be capable, um, but I apparently was. And that's given me the confidence to kind of move forward in my career. And I'm so grateful for that aspect because it was so much more fulfilling to just see how a business works. Um, meet just incredible people in, in a certain industry, just do all have all sorts of experiences. So another reason why I'm, I am actually grateful for having had to leave my more structured corporate career. Uh, why don't you also talk to us about health coaching and how you pivoted over to, um, to the healing elements of, of, of professional life? So I did, yes, I did a health coaching course at IIN, um, after I think I had sold my business, um, or during, I don't, so I did, um, an IN course for health coaching and yeah, it, it, I learned so much. Um, I find myself more coaching people for free because I just know how financially taxing this whole experience can be. And so, like I mentioned, I talk to people all the time. I don't ever say no, um, about my experience. And obviously I feel like I can most benefit people in the Lyme community. Um, but yes, that is something that's kind of on my resume <laughs> health coach. Um, I'm just not really as actively seeing people right now. Well, hopefully that will change because I think there's a lot you're going to be able to do to benefit the community if you decide to pivot into that, into that area full time. 
So Liz, uh, I understand that you are, you're working on a new project uh, and rather than taking career advice from me, where I'm trying to push you into, uh, into health coaching, maybe you can talk to us about what you are focusing on now, uh, on your current career path. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm actually working on another product line and this is a lot more meaningful and it's actually, I'm partnering with someone that was really, um, uh, important to my healing journey and it's a non-toxic skincare line. And, um, as we probably all know, it's important what you put on your body, you absorb what you put on your body within 24 seconds and your body is your, or your skin is your largest organ. And so creating a non-toxic skincare line that has high efficacy and is just sourced well and a safe, feel good product. And it's also a luxury, more luxury, um, line product line. Um, it's just something that kind of ties all my experience and what gets me excited and, um, excited for the future and, um, all rolled into one, I guess you could say. So Liz, talk to us about what part of your journey inspired you to pour all of your experience and all your energies um, into now developing this new skincare line? Well, I think it's important. And you, when you go through any chronic illness, you don't want to have to worry. There's so many things for you to worry about everything you eat, everything you put in your mouth, everything that touches your skin, every, you know, just anything that you're doing, you kind of, we were talking about analysis paralysis. It's so true. Um, and to create a skincare line where you don't have to worry there is an element of luxury. It's special. It's really well-made. It's thoughtfully made. Um, the, the chemistry work is incredible. Um, I think is just, yeah, a culmination of everything that with my health journey, with my career journey, it's just really exciting to me. It is really exciting. And of course, if you're going to, if you're going to offer something to folks who are on a, on a, uh, chronic Lyme disease journey, uh, that will allow them to feel good and will not add to their toxic load. Of course, that is really important as well. So when can we expect to see this product available? And uh, will you promise to let us know when you are making it available so we can share that with our community? Yes. Well, we actually are going to be launching in the next few weeks. We do have our website up, which is really exciting. That was the recent, one of the final, final moves. Um, and it's called Elkist, um, E-L-L-Q-I-S-T elkist.com. Um, I say it's kind of a take on alchemist, like a feminine take on alchemist. We love the word alchemist, but you see that a lot. So um, yeah, that's the name. You should check it out. All right. So we certainly are going to encourage all of our followers to go onto the website and, you know, please, as I said, keep us posted on when you're going to launch so we can post that on our social media. We'll uh, put it up on our stories and any, uh, anything else we can do to get the word out to the community. We'll, we're more than happy to do. Thank you. Uh, so let me ask you the final question that we ask everyone uh, on the Tick Bootcamp podcast. And that is, if God forbid your husband after this podcast came walking into the room where you're sitting now and he had a tick biting him, what would you recommend that he do so he wouldn't have to go on, on a terrible chronic Lyme disease journey? Well, I would, there's definitely different routes and different methods to take. Um, and I think no, no method is wrong. It's all about your personal comfort. But for me, I would get him on antibiotics as soon as possible um, for three to four weeks um, and just fight tooth and nail to have the doctor give it to him. Because I know, well, I know we have doctors now that would give it to us, but you know, you having good care, I think is so important to have a doctor that can prescribe you 
your right dose if needed. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Liz Wolcott. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Liz Wolcott, please visit her Instagram page at Platinum and Prime. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.